I have been hinting at for a while uh, that I've been wanting to study the book of Hebrews, and I keep going back to it, and I keep... It, needless to say, I've been thinking about this sermon for a while, and I thought I was going to save it till eventually, you know, like when I finally get to be able to preach the book of Hebrews. But it just kept coming to my mind so much that I was like, I just got to preach it. I just got to get it out of my system. I guess that's the way to do it, right? Just get it out and just, uh, you know, let's see what happens. Um, no, but I've been thinking about this particular passage just because I love what the writer of the Hebrews is talking about here. Uh, I've said before that I think the book of Hebrews is one of the most important books in the entire Bible. And I stand by that a lot, even after just reading this particular chapter. This chapter alone is one of the most important chapters in the book of Hebrews. Um, and I say that because what the writer to the Hebrews does is he's connecting a lot of dots. What he does is he basically starts from the very beginning and he says, uh, basically through 13 different chapters, saying, Jesus is better. But he's saying it in such a way that he's wanting to drive home the point that all those old systems, those old ways of doing religion, so to speak, that Jesus is superior to all of that. So when he comes, he comes and he abolishes, as he talks with the writer, he talks about uh, on several occasions, he abolishes the old and that way he may establish the new. And he is, as it says here in our text, the, the author of the new and living way. And over and over again, he's repeating this message that this Jesus that we preach about that we know that we interact with by faith he is the true and better prophet he's the true and better priest he's the true and better king and he is this one who gives his life in the stead of sinners and that's the most remarkable fact about this true and better prophet priest and king is that he comes and descends and takes the place of sinners bearing their the brunt of all of the justice that was duly to fall on them because of their sin over and over again, he repeats this message. And such is why here, as at the end of chapter 10, he almost says, and for all of that, this is why we gather. You know, when he says that in verse number 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. It's connected to a whole as we begin back up in verse number 19, where he says, having therefore brethren. Because of everything I've been talking about up to this point, because of all of that, because of what I've tried to reiterate to you, what I've tried to remind you of, here I'm commanding you, yes, I'm commanding you to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't forget to go to church on Sundays is essentially what he's saying in a manner of speaking. He gives this command, but I want, what I love about what he does here is that this writer, he doesn't just give a command. He gives the reason for the command, so to speak, the why of why we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, which is what we're going to look at in a minute. You know, according to the latest research, and maybe you've felt this or seen this or just kind of heard this from any various news outlets, church attendance is on to decline. And in fact... According to the latest studies, only 29% of United States adults attend church on a weekly basis, down almost a third from just the 1990s. This, of course, can be, we can attribute it, we can blame that virus that shall not be named on a little bit of that. You know, even today, even right now, churches are not always gathering like they used to. Some have fallen apart. 
Some have closed their doors, some for good, and some haven't darkened the doors of a church in over two years. We can blame that virus that shall not be named on a lot of that. But I would say that even before all of that started, that pandemic and all that stuff, there was a general disinterest, and I would even say disillusionment, towards the church that was already revealing itself. That 29% mark that I just referenced, that was a statistic from 2020. Before all of what happened has transpired in the intervening years since. I shudder to imagine what that survey would reveal today. Which is just to say this, that the pandemic did not cause, so to speak, church attendance to decline. It just gave us a way more convenient excuse to just go along with it. More convenient excuse to miss it. What's the answer? What's the answer to this growing problem of the church seeing its pews grow increasingly less filled. What's the solution? What are we to do as a church? I can tell you that there's multiple church experts or people in the know, people who've been in ministry for a long time, who are rattling this question around in their minds. And they have been for some time. But the solution, I would say, is most decidedly not some newfangled way of doing church. We don't have to upset the fruit basket. We don't have to reinvent the real in order to solve this predicament. Solving the problem of church attendance or lack thereof does not mean we have to implement the latest and greatest innovation into our worship services, although that can be good at times. It's not a matter of being trendy or being relevant or anything like that. Rather, I think it's I think it's about finding some fresh, renewed enthusiasm for the words of grace, which I would say are just explosive. These words of grace that we have in this gospel that is here in front of us, they are extended to each and every sinner. And they are the ones, the very words that have upset the world. As it says in Acts chapter 17, they have turned the world upside down. Can it... Can that gospel do it again? I think so. I know so. You see, I think as reading this particular section, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, and realizing and sort of contextualizing within our present day life as the church, I've come to think that I think we're a lax. We, the collectively, the churches all across this nation are lax somewhat in our attention to and attendance of church because we are also lax in our appreciation of just how groundbreaking the gospel is. It's that old sort of tried and true adage. It's wreaking havoc, I think, in our churches that familiarity breeds contempt. We're not surprised by grace anymore. We just come to church and sit in our pews and sing our hymns and go about our ways. When in fact, when we come into this place, do you realize what it means when you come in here and you sit as a worshiper of the living God? Do you consciously think about what that means? About what it means that you, yes, here this morning have been given this immense privilege to sit and worship the Christ as you walk through these doors? Have you... Just sat and let that affect you. 
So I think this morning, that's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is wanting to convey to this church that he's essentially preaching to. Hebrews is essentially a sermon. Jesus is better. Don't forsake the gathering of Jesus' people. Why? I think there's three reasons, three, we could say, privileges, three ways in which he proves this point this morning. I'm going to take you through them this morning quickly. The first this morning, the first sort of privilege that we ought to take full advantage of as we walk through the doors of church is this, that we can worship freely. We can worship freely. Notice what he says in verse number 22, the writer to the Hebrews says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first of these appeals that the writer is here conveying is just this sense of just, we could call it freedom, unblushing freedom that you and I have as we come into the sanctuary, as we come into God's house. We can worship freely. As he writes there, to draw near is literally just this phrase which conveys the approach of the worshiper to the place of worship. In his context, he's sort of, sort of reminding the people of the ways in which they would approach the tabernacle. They would go and they would worship through sacrifices, worship through all of those old means and rites in which they were told to through the law. Here, he conveys this altogether different way in which we approach that place. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Or as he says back up in verse number 19, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. He's conveying the fact that those who go to the place of worship, they don't go with this sense of trepidation, the sense of timidity. They're not fearful or wringing their hands. They're not walking on eggshells as they approach that place of worship. On the contrary, they are walking, as he says, with boldness, with confidence, with assurance. That's how you can come into church. Did you know that? You come with that sense of assurance in your heart, in your life, in your soul, in your mind. When you walk through the doors through the sanctuary, you do so with, as, it, as he says there, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You're not coming here on a hope so, on a maybe, on a might be, that I hope if I just get everything right, then God will favor me. Then I can rejoice. Then I can worship. If I worship rightly, then God will give me grace. We don't enter the house of the Lord in that way, my friends. We don't approach this place on the possibility of earning the favor of God. No, on the contrary, we draw near this morning. We come here. We are gathered in this place because God has favored us already in the blood of his son. He's poured it out on us. As that son took all of our sin on that cross, he poured out the favor of God on those who would believe. Therefore, we come boldly. As he says again, having therefore, brethren, boldness, freedom, unreserved speech, we enter into the holiness, holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's how we come into this place. Sunday after Sunday, we come with that confidence. The confidence of what? That the cross really worked. 
That the tomb is still empty. That it really is finished. As he spoke those words on the cross. Those things are not just religious sort of adages that we throw out because they sound good. They are things that we cling to and believe because they are true. And we can worship freely because of them. They're the facts of the very gospel that we hold dear. The gospel that's announced to us. That's received by us in faith is just that. The Savior took our sins to the cross and it worked and he rose from the dead and he lives forever on high. Amen. (laughs) That's what we come knowing. That's what we come believing. Therefore, we can come freely. Sinner, you are free in Christ, which means you can worship just as freely. You're free to approach this place. Free to approach, as he says in verse number 19, the holiest The very presence of the living God because of who Jesus is and what he has done. As he says, you're free to approach with a true heart. True heart means something that is really and truly washed. As he says there, let us draw near with a true heart. And full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You're cleansed. You're made whole. In this water that comes from the Spirit. But I think what's truly amazing about what he's conveying here, this writer to the Hebrews, when he says, you come with a true heart and full assurance of faith, what he's basically saying, you're not fake. You, here this morning, you've been made new by the blood of the Lamb. And that's not something that's like fool's gold. You are not fool's gold in the eyes of the Father that has the appearance of godliness, but not its substance. My friends, you are what the Son says that you are. Here this morning, you, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe that all these things are true, that you believe that he took your sins and took them away from you, you are a child of God, full stop. Have you ever let that thing sink in? Have you ever just sat? Maybe, maybe you have to turn off your phone. Maybe you turn off the TV like I do sometimes. And just think about what that means. You are a child of the living God. You've been brought into the kingdom by the very sacrifice of the son who took all of your nails on the tree. Let that sink in. Because that's otherworldly. That's good news that we couldn't make up on our own. This good news that comes from the Father, that comes through this word that we receive by faith, and it changes everything. My friends, you here this morning are a son of God, a daughter of God, and you can worship freely because of that. As he's here sort of suggesting, as he references in other chapters, in the olden days, the saints were prohibited from doing exactly what we do here this morning. Think about We've mentioned this before. The tabernacle was a structure that was built on requirements. Built on restrictions, we could even say. Only certain people were allowed in certain places. And each, as you draw nearer and nearer to that holiest place of all, the Holy of Holies, only one person uh, was allowed in that place one time per year. And then within that Little room in the Holy of Holies was the very presence of the Lord himself. The Shekinah glory of Jehovah resided in that place. But only one person had access to it. 
One person on one time of year, according to the law of God, they would go in and make atonement for all the people's sins. Did you know that that's not us? Here this morning, we are in the presence of God himself. In fact, when you go out and you're driving in your car, you're in the presence of God himself. If you believe in Jesus, you have the spirit living inside of you, which, as it says in the scriptures, makes you a temple of the living God. You take the holiest of holies with you wherever you go. Which ought to change the way we walk sometimes, ought to change the way we drive, ought to change the way we talk, perhaps. <laughs> but you know what it means? It means that we are, we are freed to walk into the very presence of Yahweh himself. Because of Christ. That's what this invitation is. You are free my friends. As he says. Free to draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith. No hesitation. No maybe no reservation. Because his blood covers your sin. And he has absorbed all your condemnation. We can worship freely. Because we've already been rescued from sin and death. We can rejoice in that. And I pray that that we can worship freely with that mindset. That this Savior has done all. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We can worship freely. Number two, we can worship fervently. We can worship fervently. Notice what he says in verse number 23. Let us, again, that. That command, as he says there, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. Here I think what he's doing is just that. He's conveying that on top of the freedom that we have as we come into this place and worship the Lord of all things. We can do so with fervency, with passion, with yes, boldness and clarity and freedom of speech we might say. But take note, as he includes that little parenthetical phrase at the end of verse 23, as it sort of serves to establish this whole exhortation. As he says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. The reason we can be fervent, the reason we can hold fast, is precisely because as we sung in that beautiful hymn, Christ holds us fast. Which is just a way to say exactly what the writer here conveying. That we believe because he himself, this Jesus, this word of God in the flesh. He's the one who has established this whole thing that we have now come to believe by faith. We can hold fast, as it says, without wavering, without waffling, without sort of trembling. Because our faith is founded not upon my words. Not upon your thoughts, not upon anyone else's words. No human came up with any of this news. We can hold fast to these words precisely because they came from God himself. And he is faithful that promised. He is faithful to perform the good work that he says that he will do. As we've been studying in the books of Kings, I've just come away with this indefatigable fact That all of the words that God says, all the promises that he makes, they can never be revoked. 
The things that God says, the things that God promises, they will always come to pass. As you can, if you go, but you don't have to do this now, but if you go into those books of Kings, you can see that phrase repeated over and over and over again, according to the word of the Lord. It's this driving sort of force of history and of providence that things were unfolding according to the word of the Lord. Not according to man's logic, not according to man's wisdom or intentions or motives or plans. It was God and God alone who was establishing everything. And my friends, that's what he's done for you and I here this morning. Jesus is that Christ, the word of God in flesh And he came into this world preaching what? Words of repentance. Words of deliverance. Words of forgiveness. Precisely for those who were lost and sinning. And he does all this because as he himself declares. He is the lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. And he takes on the sins of the world to take them away forever. Therefore, he is a way better priest than all the priests that came before. <laughs> look back at uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 9. This is sort of the point that the writer here is going to make. Notice he says, Then he said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever... Sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So essentially what he's referencing is just the old in the old times when priests would go in, they would take the sacrifices of the people, make atonement for them on the altar, and away they would go with the assurance that their sins were covered by the blood, by the blood of that lamb that was, that was spilled on that altar. But as he says here, the writer, they would do those same sacrifices over and over again, daily, weekly, monthly. Yearly, they would make these same sacrifices. Again, look at verse number three of the same chapter. In those sacrifices, he says, there is a remembrance again made of sins for every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. In the very fact that they're redoing these same offerings and sacrifices, they are attributing and ascribing to the fact that they cannot take away sins. They do so by faith. But they don't do so fully. You see, this is why we have this true and better high priest. As it says, through the offering of his body once for all. Never to be repeated. Never to go back up to the cross and have to do it all over again because you messed up again. His sacrifice has infinite power to cover an infinite number of sins. His blood is that sure, that sufficient, that powerful. His blood was poured out for you on that cross. And it wasn't just any old blood. As it says, not the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. It was the blood of God. Have you thought about that? 
The blood of God that was spilled on the cross and which pulses the pardon and peace for each and every sinner in this room and each and every sinner in the world. And that proclamation, that's the gospel. And that proclamation can never be rescinded, can never be taken back. And such is why we can hold fast. Such is why we can worship with such fervency and passion and yes, even emotion. (laughs) Because these things can't be taken away. You might be at first inclined to skip over that word. It's not a very alarming word or anything like that. But that word in verses 19 and 21 is very significant, I think. As he begins in verse 19, having, therefore, brethren. And as he says in verse 21, and having an high priest over the house of God. That word having carries this sense of ownership, of possession. It is something that you have by faith on account of Christ. And it denotes this idea that, yes, we can have this impassioned grip of the things that God has given to us in his son. Precisely because he has given them to us. And he's meaning to say that these things that we have, they are ours. They've been given to you as possessions and privileges. As those who are the sons and daughters of the living God. They are something that will never be taken away. As he says in chapter 9, they are your eternal inheritance. Just go back a page. Hebrews 9, look at verse 11. Notice, but Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies through the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Everlasting life. Freedom from sin and death. Such are the things, the eternal inheritances that are gifted to you in Jesus, in the gospel of the living God. We can be fervent in worshiping because of that. Free worship is fervent worship. And fervent worship emanates from those who are free. My friends, that is you this morning. If you believe in Jesus, you are free. And you can worship him fervently. But lastly, number three. We can worship freely, fervently. And we can worship him frequently. Notice verse 24. Back in our text of Hebrews 10. The writer says, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love, unto good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
I think it's absolutely fascinating how the writer here is sort of couches this insistence, this command on going to church, on going to the assembly of the saints as a matter of thinking about the needs of others before yourself. He gives this command, but he's sandwiching it in between these two noteworthy reminders that when you do so, it's about the ones that are next to you. When you go, as he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why? Exhort one another in verse 25. Or as he says in verse 24, consider one another. It's because of those who are around you, which I think raises this important truth about going to church that I, I will confess I don't often consider. Not often enough. Perhaps you don't either. Is that church attendance is not always about you. It's not always about what you and what you will receive or what you can do or what you can accomplish or what people can see you accomplishing and doing. (laughs) Maybe it's the fact that just your presence encourages the person right next to you, in front of you, behind you. Yes, of course, your attendance in church, your involvement in church and all of its ministries and activities, those are good and well and things that we ought to do and they can benefit you and bless you. It's amazing to hear the stories of how those who are teaching get more benefit out of teaching than those who are listening. (laughs) But in a deeper way, I think, in a truer way, as the writer is here conveying, the church itself Attending church itself is a blessing to those who are next to you. Did you know that you're missed when you're not here? Maybe you haven't felt it. Maybe it would, be, it would behoove some of us to remind those that we see are missing that we miss them. But you're missed. Think about it this way. Let's say you're having a family reunion. What is a family reunion about? Food, yes, maybe. We have that occasionally. <laughs> Fun and fellowship, but you're there to sort of rejoice over this idea that we have a common kinship. We're all part of the same family. That's what happens at family reunions. You see loved ones, relatives from far and away come, and we all gather and we have a good time. And if one family isn't there, it's kind of obvious, and it becomes the topic of conversation. Oh, did you hear this uncle wasn't here? Why, why didn't he come? Where was he? I think in some ways it ought to be the same with the church. Because, you know, every week, this, this is going to sound corny, but every week we have a family reunion. <laughs> That's what we're doing here this morning. It's the reunion of the family of God. Because why are we here? We're here to revel and rejoice in just this specific fact. That we have a shared kinship in our brother Jesus, who's dying, brought us into the family of God. And now we're here to rejoice in that as family members, family members of the living God. And when we come to this place, that's what we do so. We do so praising and preaching the very fact that we are God's sons and daughters. So when one of that family isn't with us, we should consider them in love, urge them to rejoin the fellowship because this is where the power is. I've said this on a couple of occasions, but I think it's right here in this very text and all throughout the scripture, really. You've heard that phrase, the church is not a building, the church is a people. Indeed, I agree. Churches, 
The true church, we could say, is not made up of drywall and bricks and mortar. It's made up of flesh and blood, hearts that are pumping. (laughs) That's who the church is, which is why we can rejoice when we can go to another church in another state. And we can see (laughs) this is the church, too. Have you ever done that, by the way? Sidebar. Have you ever done that? Have you ever visited a church? It almost feels like you have a family member there. (laughs) It's because you do. It's because you're bought by the same blood and they have the same spirit that is living with you. It's that way truer sort of reality like when you go to a sports game and you're all fans of the same team. And when your team wins, man, you rejoice like you just won (laughs) because you feel it and you're hugging people that you didn't know three hours ago. And now all of a sudden you've become bosom buddies because your team won. It's sort of the same way in church. We go to another gathering and we see the Lord working. We see the Lord's people assembling. And it's like you're part of the same family because you are. The power of the church is not in its structures and its buildings. But you know why we have structures and buildings? Because the power of the church lies in the fact that it assembles, that it gathers That the sinner saints of God, they come together to revel and rejoice, to worship the fact that they've been made saints because of who their Savior is. That's what the church is. And I would say one of the truest and greatest signs that we care for one one another is just that simple act of going to church together. We go because we're part of the same family and we draw near to worship with our Christian brothers and sisters because we have the same Savior, the same Lord, the same King. Therefore, this isn't something that we should take lightly or take flippantly. I'm not saying this because I'm a pastor and church is my occupation. (laughs) I've grown up in church. Maybe you have this idea that church is something you have to do on certain occasions, big holidays. (laughs) You have to be here because it's what grandma wanted. It's because I I grew up this way or what have you. Maybe you've seen some, some ills in the church that have colored your views of it. You've seen people backbiting, talking about one another behind their backs. You've seen some of, we could say, the nasties. You've seen how the sausage is made to use that idiom. (laughs) You don't like what you see. It can make you fearful of getting involved in church again. It can make you fearful. Feared, uh, fearful of getting burned again. I can't promise that you won't. If you choose to make Stonington a part of your life or anything like that. I can't promise you that those things won't always occur because, let's face it, the church is made up of sinners. Sinners are going to sin. Hate to break news to you. But even as I've grown up in church, and I have for a long time, growing, growing up in Sunday school, my dad was as a pastor, my grandfather as a pastor, I too have seen a lot of the sausage. <laughs> seen a lot of the nasties of church. And how people can ridicule And deride, not just my father, but others who are in ministry. Deride them in ways that seem also almost incomprehensible. And there's sometimes where I've thought, why are we we still doing this? 
why are we still here? Why do we still gather? And you know why? Because this gospel is true. And it's worth celebrating. It's worth rejoicing over. Sinner, you have been made free. You've been made free from your sin because of Jesus. If that doesn't get an amen, I don't know what will. But <laughs> We come here this morning with those privileges. We can worship freely and fervently and frequently. And we should do so not because you necessarily like the person next to you. Maybe you don't. I don't know. I'm not going to accuse anyone. You should do so because we have the privilege of being here as sinners who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Who wouldn't want to rejoice in that? Who wouldn't want to revel in that sort of celebration? I I put this in my notes and I knew that I would probably step on toes, but I'm going to do it anyways. We like to think of ourselves as a Christian nation. It often comes out during holidays such as what we're celebrating today. Lately, I've come to believe I don't know if we can make that claim anymore. And maybe that's not a new or novel revelation. (laughs) And not because we're seeing what we're seeing. Not because we're seeing the decadence of our society sort of plastered everywhere for us. I don't think we can call ourselves a Christian nation when you have Christians finding excuses to not to be in the assembly of God's people. If, if we are not taking advantage of the privilege of coming into this place, why would we want, think that other people could see that and want to rejoice in it too? There's legitimate reasons to not be in church. <laughs> Jude has some good ones. But... If you really love your family, if you really love your country even, this is the place where you're going to be on Sundays. The world is not going to be remade with churches increasingly closing their doors and putting padlocks up. The church is not going to survive. Well, I I shouldn't say that. The church is always going to survive. But I should say this. We cannot turn the world upside down unless we darken these church doors. And wherever you're from, the church doors that are near you. The church is God's method for remaking the world. What did he promise to his disciples right before he was crucified? That the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing can thwart the mission of the church. The proclamation of the good news. That which we come here professing and proclaiming. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can hinder it. Why would we not want to take part? Take part in that mission. Take part in that wonderful joyous privilege that we have. If you love your family and love your country. This is the place you will be with these people. Yes even people that you may not like. But they're people that are your brothers and sisters. People that are your fellow family members of the living God. And it's your privilege, as he says, to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. 
As the manner of some is, some do so, some forsake it, some consider it not something that they have to do. But you exhort one another by the fact of assembling yourselves together. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. I'm not a prognosticator. I can't tell the future. I can't tell you how many more days or years or months we have on this planet. But when he says there the day, you perhaps know what he's referring to. The day of judgment, the day of the Lord. So in short, what he's saying, that as you see or feel or sense this, this approaching day, doomsday, the assembling of God's people is something we should take fuller and fuller advantage of. Not running to our, uh, running to our houses and isolating ourselves in corners and getting in our bunkers. Because we've prepped well for the end times. Assembling ourselves. Gathering with people. Because this is the church. And the church is the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is that which was won through the blood of the Lamb. My friends. Here, this place. These people. Singing with them. Worshipping with them. It is your greatest joy and is your highest privilege. May we always relish and rejoice in it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.